Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. On this episode, I am talking a lot about love, relating, intimacy, and our even relatively newly digital lives with the writer, theorist, and uh, literary critic Joanna Walsh. Um, Joanna had written a book of great short stories called Vertigo that I saw when I came to Ireland in 2016. I picked it up, I looked at it, I thought this looks awesome, and then I think I bought something else anyway. <laughs> Um, I finally, I kept thinking about the book because I had read a passage in it and I just thought, oh, I really need to pick that up. So it kept repeating itself in my mind until finally I read it and it was truly excellent. Her fiction, uh, which includes Vertigo, which she reads a story from on this episode, um, as well as Breakup, uh, Grow a Pair, which is a book of pornographic fairy tales, and uh, Seed Story, which is a novel that you can read on your phone that unfolds in many different directions, uh, all has this kind of relentless, <laughs> I would say, uh, repetitive, observant, and really thoughtful quality to it. And so when I read, finally, uh, Joanna's work, I thought, this is someone I really need to have a conversation with because she's obviously a very brilliant person. Breakup, in particular, is... Uh, filled throughout with all these um, quotes from different theorists that I like, different writers, literary uh, critics, and all that sort of stuff. So I think that uh, her mission, which is, you know, synthesizing a lot of ideas from disparate currents and sort of bringing them together into maybe not coherent is not the right word, uh, but an, an, an interesting uh, collection and conversation uh, through her own creative lens. And that's something that I try to do on this show, even if my ideas are also not exactly coherent, I try to bring together a lot of different currents. I think that that's really important for uh, creating new ideas. And Joanna certainly does that. So in this episode, the conversation is really wide-ranging, but we stay pretty close to the idea of how we relate to one another and why our old ideas of relating are not enough to describe our experiences, especially with the advent of the ways that we interact now. So we talk about the way intimacy is formed, tension in fairy tales, um, the occult bodies and technological intervention into those occult bodies, and of course, plenty of writers and theorists. I really love this episode. I think it's a really surprising one. Uh, it was a very surprising conversation for me, and I think it will be for you as well. And in addition, as I said, Joanna reads one of her great short stories, Vagues, uh, from her collection, Vertigo. So before we jump uh, into the episode, I just want to put it out there that uh, there can be a real closeness that happens between us if you support the show and when you support the show uh, via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Um, one of the ways in which that closeness happens is if you sign up at the $10 level, I do a salon every month um, where I meet with a bunch of members from the patron community. We all talk about a topic. Last time we talked about the end of the world. We've talked about psychoanalysis, Rudolf Steiner, 
Uh, the upcoming one for October, we're talking about what is reality. Uh, so we go into all kinds of really interesting places and we have great conversations. Um, I'm also unveiling a new benefit for people and patrons at the $10. People and patrons. I like that I said that. <laughs> obviously, for you wonderful people who are patrons at the $10 level, which is uh, answering questions. Uh, so it's just a sort of Connor Speaks thing. So I'll accept all kinds of questions from you all. And then rather than doing an Ask Me Anything where I answer in just quick succession uh, all the questions, I'll choose one and I'll respond each month to one of those questions uh, with a little video that's only available to patrons. So it could be a personal question or it could be a very uh, philosophical question or maybe you just want to hear me talk about something. So uh, patrons at the $10 level and up will have access to that. Um, you also get curated lists from me. So this month I put up my favorite horror movies. Um, there's a book list that's introduction to the occult. There's a uh, uh, introduction to well uh, the best books on sex basically as far as I'm concerned. There's a song list uh, that links to a Spotify uh that links to Spotify with a playlist about best songs about the occult or that have a kind of occult quality to them and so on and so forth. So you get all kinds of cool stuff just for supporting a show that you really love and engendering a kind of closeness between you, uh, the listener, and me who's creating this show. So please do support the show, patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib, um, and let's be in it together. All right, uh, so without further ado, uh, here is the episode um, that I'm so excited to share with you and I think is so surprising with Joanna Walsh. Hey everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor Beeb, and I am so excited to be here with Joanna Walsh. Hello. 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 <laughs> um, so let's just sort of jump right into it. I mean, I want to talk with you about in-between spaces. I want to talk about sex mm -hmm. and artificiality and the body and digital love, but I'm going to just, let me just give a little thing about my life and doing sex work and pornography for a minute and then I'll hand that over to you mm -hmm. <laughs> okay so um I was thinking about how you know in porn you don't get to choose your same partner so you get this like you know email that's like here's who you're working with for eight hours and performing sex with for eight hours like tomorrow right and well or in a month and so, you know, people always ask, do you get to choose your scene partners? Are you attracted to them? And it's like, hell no. Like the entire industry would grind to a halt if that were the case, mm -hmm. you know. So you, you go in and you find, at least for me, and I've heard other performers say this, you find a way into generating and creating intimacy with them. So mm -hmm. you find the thing that you're attracted to and you emphasize it or you sort of push on it and that becomes a portal into generating intimacy with somebody. It's not mechanical, it's something mm -hmm. else entirely. It's and me method acting. It's yes, yeah. it, right. Or it's it's performative, it's athletic, it's different mm -hmm. words, but me mechanical's not exactly it. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about that a lot as I've been you know, reading and rereading a lot of your writing, that there's this kind of cut up feeling of attraction and desire in mm -hmm. it. 
um, that's based on a kind of selection of the doorway in. And so I just wanted to start there with you and maybe we can spin out from that. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. I think, you know, when you meet someone for the first time, if you don't know them, I mean, I guess most of our encounters now are... I don't know, maybe most of my encounters have been with people that I haven't known beforehand, even though I've then got to know them afterwards. There's a, there's a great deal of that in non-porn sex, I think. Um, you know, you meet someone and you think, well, it is like opening a door, as you said. You open a door and then you see, well, where, where are we? This is an interesting place to be. And I, I don't know, I, I get the feeling that some people think that's a strange attitude <laughs> and that some, pe- some people think you should be looking for something or um, wanting something in particular. But mostly, I guess, personally, what I'm looking for is something to explore. Um, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a Lisa Rigoro quote about... I guess, relational subjectivity, where she says, you know, like, um, one of my is, is really the question, what are you? I'll probably completely misquote her. What could we do together? Something like mm-hmm. that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not quoting her completely accurately, but yeah, no, that I, kind of idea. I, I know I really like that. I mean, I know it's it's interesting. You, you quote Lacan, you know, off and on, mm-hmm. and there's that famous Lacan quip, but there's like, there's translated in different ways. There's no such thing as a sexual relationship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you're reminding me of that as well. Like, mm-hmm. um, well, maybe we could generate a relationship, but the idea that I'm going to somehow find some kind of pure intimacy or chemistry will just be there between us. But in mm-hmm. fact, I bring everything that I am with me when mm-hmm. I meet you in this space. And in fact, like I have to, what am I going to do with everything that I've brought? You know, not what will I, maybe actually this is a, maybe this is countering what you said. I'm now that I'm saying that, but like, <laughs> I, you know, like I bring everything and, and in some ways, like I have to do something with what, what I've brought, yeah. not necessarily expect something to, be there for me mm-hmm. to begin with. I guess the expectation is kind of anticipation of a narrative that you've heard before. Mm. Um, and I kind of prefer stories I haven't necessarily heard before. Um, or, I, or stories that just don't sound like stories. Um, mm. I'm, I'm, I, was just, I was just writing on, you know, the Kathy Acker show in London. I'm just writing something about that. And I'm writing about artificial intelligence and Can chat, you just describe it for chat the people bots. Oh, the Kathy Acker show, right. Well, it's at the ICA in the centre of London. And um, I, I saw it very hurriedly because I was just got off a plane and I thought, I really want to see this. And then um, I had to get a train. So I, I saw it very rushedly. I rushed through all the rooms. <laughs> um, so it's it's a lot about... There's lots of... There's lots of her books and they have her handwriting in it. And I was... Immediately I saw the handwriting. I just thought, now I'm okay with it because... Approaching Kathy Acker can seem very daunting, but her, her handwriting is kind of round and bubbly and very clear. And it looks ah. like the kind of handwriting you think, is she going to dot the I with a little heart? And I didn't see that she did, but that it's that kind so of handwriting. Bizarre. I would have never yeah. guessed. And I had yeah. that kind of sudden access of vulnerability where I thought, you know, okay, she's quite scary. She's really performative. She's got piercings. She's wearing leather. But look, she's, she's, she's got this kind of very cute handwriting that really looks a little bit like a teenage girl's handwriting. Mm. And the other thing that's really great about it is she could read her notes back. 
and because it's really really clear and I, I can't it had this kind of air of studiousness about it it had this air of like wanting to to to, to write something out very neatly and very clearly um and that was that was that, those were her annotated books and that was that was really exciting mm. but the thing that I really got out of it is I saw a video which I hadn't seen before of her performing in Toronto um a piece uh from I think it's fr- from Identity um which I must get hold of. And it was about the poet Rambo and it was uh, about um, his relationship with Verlaine and, and it kind of seeged in with her life as, as her, her writing often does. And I, I, I started thinking about that kind of phrase that Rambo used in a letter to his teacher, Georges, and where he wrote, I is another. And I, I just love that mm. phrase. I love, I love, things that are a little bit ungrammatical An, and they, they highlight the, one word or what's two happening words. which what another 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 i think i think it's um it's in french it's une autre so it's two words but it would be two words anyway so they don't have that problem that we have in english as to whether to separate them or not I so see. i i guess i think it was translated in english as one word in the translation i've got um but yeah you know i quite like splitting words up i like i mm. like what happens to words mm. when you when you split them up um i've been using a lot of in the thing i'm writing at the moment i've been using a lot of some thing and any thing to emphasize the kind of thinginess the objectiness of of what i'm writing about mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but yeah that kind of i is another was very interesting to me yeah that's a really that's a really intense phrase and i think about that you know in a sort of occult sense you know these kinds of uh occult philosophies that would tell us that or, or or Levinas, if you want to go mm-hmm. that way, that would tell us that our our I-ness, our self, is actually composed by everything that's looking upon us. And mm-hmm. we're some sort of like, you know, almost like they're all kind of, everything's looking, and by everything I mean also the floor, the ceiling, the mm-hmm. air, the light, all that kind of stuff, looking upon uh, a vacant space and composing that, you know, all, all sort of mm-hmm. together. So I is another is a really fascinating yeah. way of thinking about about that yeah that's yeah. kind of object oriented and ontology no yeah. no no, no. <laughs> don't ever accuse me of no. that <laughs> okay. well no i mean i don't like object oriented ontology no, so for, I any, don't either. for anybody that like says that yeah. like for anybody that doesn't know that it's basically mm-hmm. like what does <laughs> this is a really shitty way of describing it's like what is the dresser drawer thinking like i always get sort of irritated because what what i would also say is that like there's no space where my consciousness isn't like I can't mm-hmm. I, I can't I can't get outside of my own consciousness sure. and all the ideas so in some ways it's a very advanced kind of solipsism I, I can't get outside of my own consciousness I can't verify that anything exists outside of my consciousness but I can construct within that something very complicated and interesting mm-hmm. and I don't think object-oriented ontology does that I think it wants to banish this sort of foundation that's like mm-hmm. Well, everything kind of extends from my consciousness. So it's yeah. kind of like, well, that's not important, but let's mm-hmm. just jump to the next thing. And that's why yeah. I object to Well, I think, it, I think it claims that things have boundaries that are absolute and dictated by themselves, but they also somehow coincide, coincide with our boundaries, which is kind of weird. So when we say that thing's a table, then the table says it's a table too. And it's like, wow, why, why, why isn't the table saying hey, right. a pair of legs and something <laughs> right. else, even when it's especially made of two different materials. So, you know, I think there are, there, I think there are problems to be honest. Yeah. yeah. Did you know the, um, Eduardo Viveros de Castro and the, uh, cannibal metaphysics, do you know? No, no, not at all. Oh, he's, he's so fascinating. So he's an anthropologist, but he has this whole 
Cannibal Metaphysics is the best one. Uh, he has another one called, I think, The Relative Native. But basically, he's talking about the in uh, South America where he did his ethnographic field work is sort mm-hmm. of trying to figure out how the people he was living with, and it's really shitty that I don't remember who they were, but how the people he was living with related to and with the rest of the mm-hmm. people that they said were people but were animals, jaguars and tapirs yeah. and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And he said, actually, you know, like when when the taper looks upon, or when the jaguar looks upon the human, it sees a tapir. And when the taper sees a, a, a experiences itself as a human taking a mm-hmm. taking a shower when it goes into the lake. I mean, I'm really like reducing it to something sort of silly, but it's an interesting way to evade the problem that you just talked about. It's still in some ways not satisfactory, but it at least I think sort of gets away from saying, well, the table says it's a table, but mm-hmm. no, like the table says it's a human is something is a different mm. proposition. That or I think everything more thinks it's a subject. Yes, which exactly. Is kind of interesting. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So then, what do we make of what do we make of that? That's really yeah. weird. I mean, I don't think the table thinks anything. So I have to, <laughs> <laughs> I have to just say, I, mean, I, I, I don't think there is a table. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> okay, although, okay. although, although, you know, I'm quite happy to use them. I'm, I'm putting my coffee on one right now. <laughs> That'll um, be the title. You know, that's of this just, episode. That's is just there a con- table? Convenient. Convenience. Um, <laughs> There's a great Rudolf Steiner thing where he mm-hmm. he has this whole he has this crowd of people sitting in front of him and he says, you know, you know, the idea of a chair is as real as a chair. And he Mm -hmm. says, now, would you not, but you would all be disappointed if I filled this room with the ideas of chairs for you to sit on, but nevertheless it is so, you know, and I think that that kind of dealing with that contradiction Mm -hmm. is really interesting. But then all the work I do about online things, it it tends to be about like how seriously we treat just something that's just like a series of images that appear in front of us. Mm. I mean, you know, some things like we understand that they exist and they can have real effects on our lives like Donald Trump, but some things like, you know, they're so removed from us and, um, I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in like how much we can care about them, how much we can live our lives around them, both kind of physical objects, which are, you know, with us, but also just things, things that appear online, you know, like cat videos or whatever, you know, they, they, they have real, real effects on us. And, and, uh, you know, they can make just like that, that kind of tweaking of, of mm. your attitude of your kind of what Sarah Ahmed calls your orientation can, um, mm. can, can do a lot of things. Yeah. That's, it's so interesting. And Donald Trump's like a really great example. I think of, we think he exists, or yes, we think, and we, we, we think, think we think something. Us. We think something called Donald Trump exists. Yeah, yes. we have like a great, yeah. we have a great yeah. idea of him. Yeah. That, that um, and sometimes you know, terrible legislation happens, and then we're pretty sure he exists. And then, and then other times <laughs> you think, well, okay, which bit should I take notice of? Right. Which which bits to- of that existence? Totally. Yeah. yeah, and I think, and and it's so funny to me. Well, not, maybe not funny, but when I look upon people who are constantly radiating an anxiety about. Mm-hmm him but yet have not for the most part been affected by anything he's done or his Mm. policies and it's just this constant like anxiety i'm like what that's really to me indicative or or in some ways pointing to i'm interested in hearing what you say about this (laughs) but pointing to like um that's because you have not generated a a a sense of morality for yourself because you, you there's no decision about which problems and troubles in the world you're going to apply yourself yeah. to. You'd rather actually radiate reflexive anxiety mm-hmm. about a, a symbol to you, essentially, 
But the reason why I said I'd be really interested is that morality doesn't really show up in when I read it. It's not mm-hmm. on the surface, at least, of most of the stuff that you write. Like the question of morality is almost like yeah. too romantic or something. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you mean by that? Is it you mean you mean ideas about how how we should live? Are you thinking about that, or ideas about like how we should behave to each other, or how we should behave to ourselves? Yeah. Um, I think I'm an observer rather than a mm. dictator or I'm, maybe I'm an extrapolator sometimes. Yeah, I feel bad sometimes for not being more utopian, especially, you know, kind of in the realms of mm. feminist writing. It's quite difficult to get away with being a, 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 a gloomy feminist, you know, like like Jean Rhys or something, where mm. you, don't, you don't say this is how we could be or this is the kind of life we could lead. Um, we just just say you know this is what's happening and it's it's a bit shit sometimes but you can there are pleasures in it Mm. yeah well it's funny because you said there is there is a kind of um i wouldn't say it's gloominess in in your work but Mm -hmm. in the same way that i mean it's fun it's interesting you wrote a book of fairy tales essentially grow a pair um these pornographic fairy tales and fairy tales are flat I mean, mm-hmm. there, there, there's a kind of... Um, That's what I like about the tone. Yeah. I like just, just this happened and this happened. Again, it's like <clears> things, it's like objects, they're just laying them out as if they existed in front of you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and really interesting because when it, that that's also echoed just by the process of reading a book, you know, mm-hmm. like here are these symbols on this page yeah. laid next to each other with spaces mm-hmm. between them in certain places and that enters into a relationship with light and attention mm-hmm. and physiology and suddenly like something like a, almost this angelic presence or something emerges from mm-hmm. this kind of ecology you know of these yeah. things coming together and I, I like the way it evades i guess what's this, the notion of character the notion of subjects that's been built up largely by the novel and and mm. um you know the kind of psychological novel i guess um you know which which says that characters are things that do this rather than just kind of these representations where we say once upon a time there was a princess and you don't know what she looks like everyone reads their own kind of version of this in um and you sort of infer that they have a certain attitude just because just from a very few basic details but it doesn't it doesn't really matter you, you don't they never suffer from existential angst or anything you know they they, they can be they can be. They can have very big operatic emotions. They can hate, right. but but often they don't even do that. They just behave in a certain way. They're just on a certain trajectory. They're just that sort of that sort of object. Right. Yeah. There's a path through mm-hmm. the woods, and yeah. there's not much yes. strain. And if there is, I mean, maybe it's because they know that if they stray, there's trouble. Do you know what I mean? Like if they try to develop their character by picking the flowers mm-hmm. off the path, they're fucked. Yeah. Like maybe it's like even in the things that they're contained in, there's this there's a kind of danger that would be worse for them if they start to develop their selfhood or something like there's that. There's a nice tension though when writing a modern fairy tale there's a nice tension you can get from from the fact that your writing occurs <coughs> at a certain point in time you know like now where people expect certain things of novels and of characters in novels and you can kind of play on that on along with this the blankness that the fairy tale offers you there's there's a sort of pleasant tension and it's it's a joke in effect it's like that thing Henry Bergson saying um a joke is the mechanical encrusted on the human so you know a kind of joke of the fairy tale is the is or the contemporary kind of fairy tale can be um the idea that of, of character as we understand it rubbing up against the idea of um of of personhood as, as the fairy tale understands it uh-huh yeah that's really interesting I'd, i've never heard that bergson quote either that's great yeah about humor i want let me i want to jump back and talk about something that you brought up before though because i was thinking about um 
so you have this line in breakup um what is it love is not analog it's digital mm-hmm. right? and it and that sent me and, and along with some of the things that you've said it sent me in this direction i've been thinking a lot lately about how when we and and have sex and the same thing is applied to love is sexier but when we have sex we have sex to think about having sex later Mm -hmm. not necessarily to have sex because so much of our sexual lives is really and i would say 99 percent of our sexual lives is 99% of our lives are sexual, but 99% of our sexual lives are really about the imaginative space and the urge and the desire and the drive. And so then we enter into a space where we enact the thing that we're thinking about all the time. And then we take it back into the fantasy Mm -hmm. realm as a sort of kind of educational, that's a shitty way to say it, but you know what I mean? Like educational or teaching or mysterious experience that we can ruminate on and think about and then go into it again. And so... These like, um, so I know you're really into these in-between spaces, but I'm just sort of thinking about like, we think of sex as the act, but in Mm. fact, like really the thinking about sex is what sex is mostly, you know? Sex is its very own simultaneous pornography. I think mm. that's, that's, that was one bit I wrote in Breakup because I was writing about Amsterdam and I was, you know, the character was walking around Amsterdam um, thinking about not having sex with this person that she wanted to have sex with and walking through the red light district and looking at how sex is being presented as something saleable, I guess, and something that's kind of potential as well. Um, So it's not occurring right then, but it's still a sexual space or a sexy space. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you know this book, What is Sex by Alenka Zupancic? No, you're oh giving my, me a oh lot of reading. Oh my God. It's, it's the most, I rarely, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I rarely read things about sex now that are mm-hmm. impressive to me. This yeah. book is like a, it's it's a bit of a mind blower. She also has a nice chapter kind of dissing object oriented ontology. Okay, that's a, that's a double win. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not that that's even necessary anymore. I think it's had its time, but it's but but basically she's saying like sex is the nothingness from which everything comes, right? So mm-hmm. like so there there's this you know this idea that everything is emanating from mm-hmm. sex so if you're trying to define what sex is you can't but you can say that it's everything mm-hmm. <laughs> which is really sort of interesting she's doing it from a psychoanalytic perspective yeah, yeah, yeah. Lac- lacanian yeah, mostly yeah. but um you know when i think about the sexual e- experiences in my life and how we try to talk about them or, or get at them in some way nobody does it in an intellectual way to me Mm -hmm. in a way that's satisfactory and it's because the language that we use always draws us away from what might be sexy so the line i'd say about it is like if you want to talk about sex you have to speak in pornography like there's this language that's available to us but it has to evoke and 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 events the actual sexual which is very difficult for any other kind of that's true and it's a visual language too i mean you know you can get Mm. dressed up you can dress in a certain way you can and people find you available. You you find yourself available. It's just it's 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 mm. kind of it's strange. And then you know you can be just as sexual without doing that. But it's it's, <laughs> it's strange. There's a really right. nice book I'm reading, um, and I've forgotten what it's called. Is it called A Dialogue on Love? Um, it's by Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick, uh. and it's an account of her therapy which she had after recovering from breast cancer in her forties. Um, and it's, it's, there's lots of stuff about sex in it. She talks to the therapist a lot about, you mm. know, 
about about these kind of issues. It's it's really lovely, but I've left it somewhere and I'm, I haven't finished it, so I hope I can find it again. She's great, and you're reminding me to kind of go back to her because mm. she, I mean, she's so influential, but like her name kind of got erased in a weird way. Like even though her terms, heteronormativity, and yeah. all these kinds of things, homosociality, yeah. uh, yes, yes. they've all sort of permeated yeah. the zeitgeist. But like people don't refer to her. They might know who like Foucault is or something, mm-hmm. or Judith Butler, but they don't ever go back to her. It's yeah, interesting. It's, I think maybe because she talks about she writes about literature too much for the culture's taste to be able to say like oh this is where our yeah, <laughs> you know our social so. ideas come from or yeah, something maybe so maybe so yeah i saw judith butler in ucd oh, um, how was, when it, was by it? The way? it was brilliant she's she said that she always wanted to be a stand-up <coughs> and she she is like a stand-up she's very funny very dry and um yeah it was really it was really nice to see her very kind of open and friendly with the audience as well that's that was right on the heels of um the avatar renell thing Do you yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um and i was wondering if she had addressed that there or if anybody had demanded that she address that there because that was to me a really interesting moment i, mm-hmm. I felt like you know when oh god actually this is a great thing to ask you about because these kinds of um these threads of the theory critical queer all these kinds of theories weave their way through your work in such interesting and you're, you're writing in such interesting ways and i think that like um that moment was such a dark moment for all of that i felt mm-hmm. in a way because it seemed to me that the people that were defending their actions no longer cared about the theories that they created and that yeah. was really depressing yeah it's like it's that that kind of thing i think that if you read Chris Krause's book Torpor. Have you read Torpor? Mm-mm. No, it's 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 was written in the late nineties, but it I think it's already saying something like that. Um she's really writing, you know, it's a satire, it's a funny book. It has her and her ex husband Sylvain Lotranger as characters, uh they're called Sylvia and Jerome mm. in the book, which is the same the same names as Georges Perec used in his book, mm. um Les Choux Things in the nineteen sixties. So they're sort of these two innocents abroad in some ways. Um and they're they 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 end up in Romania trying to adopt a child and it's a it's a complete mess and it's it's everything goes wrong. And uh they're on their way through they they meet many theorists whom Silver is working with to bring their their, or Jerome to, to bring their works to the states, and I, the whole novel seems like an indictment of the <laughs> of the theory that was going on at the time and its inability to cope with the terrible consequences of the collapse of the um, Soviet Eastern Europe. Ah, that's so, it's so fascinating because uh, yeah, I wouldn't have framed it that way because I would think that the theories actually themselves are interesting, but the people that were employing them mm-hmm. actually didn't care about them even yeah, as they sort yeah, of spit yeah, them out. Yeah, yeah. But then. It's funny you bring up Chris Krause because I was so incensed that Semiotex published that Andrea Dworkin book like a, like a month. I, whatever, <clears throat> I have no idea what your feelings about Andrea mm-hmm. Dworkin are, so I'm kind of taking a leap here. But I, fa- I found it so offensive mm-hmm. like to publish that book just after all these like extreme anti-sex worker laws like had come mm-hmm. out in, in the U.S. and had affected the entire world, SESTA and, and FOSTA, that, you know, been leading to the deaths of, of sex workers. Mm-hmm. And and also just to say, like, this really, like, the these radical queer books that you publish, they don't align with this as much as you want it to. Like, mm-hmm. there's something there, but, like, this person 
and that type of um, that that type of well, I don't want to say feminism, but mm-hmm. there there was this kind of strand of feminism or this thread of it, you know, really in my mind had a lot to do with the silencing and and mm-hmm. and suffering of people who were dying of AIDS and who had yeah. to sort of come yeah. out and like actually be blatantly, explicitly sexual and overcome that and assert sexual rights and liberation. So it's funny to think then, I mean, I know Chris Krauss doesn't run semi-attacks or anything. She has to do with it. So she's, she's, well, she's, she's you know, it depends which, you know, which bit of semi-attacks published it. She, she's purely responsible for native agents. Okay. And then there's there's a no, for, there's, there's foreign story. agents which was um, you know I, I don't really know that much about the structure of it but foreign agents is possibly still still there. Um, uh uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah you know there are two there are two different um, tracks. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean it's in yeah. semi text just to single them out. Obviously they publish mm-hmm. a lot of amazing stuff. Yeah. But to think and they publish your book yeah. right. But to think about. Um, the ways in which we sort of depart mm-hmm. from our theoretical coherence sometimes I think is interesting. I'm sure I have my mm-hmm. own examples, you know. I mean, I would hope that they were not as bad as the ones we've been <laughs> talking about in my mind, but I'm sure I have them myself. I don't know if you've caught yourself, like, having those in your own life at a certain point. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have, but then... I guess my relationship to theory is is very floating. I can't say that I hmm. kind of adopt anything particular, just lots lots of things from other things. But that is, you know, I, I find my my perspective is constantly being changed by what I read, mm. really. Um, so and and tweaked and refined, and also a lot by by things that I don't agree with and things that I don't want to read. And it's it's just orienting yourself within within that kind of field and, and reminding yourself that you're not what it is and there's right. no reason you should necessarily be the be the be be the, the the thing the locus of 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 what <laughs> of how this of how this this kind of ought ought to go or is going or you know you've got I've, I've got to maintain a a position where yes obviously there are some things that I'm going to think are right and wrong but everything is still open for being changed, being tweaked. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it, that stands in complete opposition to like cancel culture, right? And like someone saying the wrong thing once on Twitter or like, yeah. we can't ever read Zizek again because he said this one thing, for example, or mm-hmm. or we can't, you know, or or canceling Judith Butler because of the Avatel Renell mm-hmm. thing or whatever, just deciding that some people are just off the table because yeah. even though their ideas actually... You know, mm-hmm. Todd McGowan, who's been on the show a couple of times, a psychoanalytic theorist, he he said it well, I think, because we were talking about Hegel and people saying Hegel is sexist, mm-hmm. which I find... Um, well, you know, I like Heidegger, but yeah. I, 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 <laughs> well, right. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend many of his thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but I find some of them very useful. <laughs> no, Heidegger's a great example, too. But it was like, you know, he just said, do, do the thinker... We have to... Maybe we need to start thinking, do the thinkers live up to their thoughts? You know, mm-hmm. like these thoughts yes. like can be or, really beautiful. Yeah. Or, you know. you know, even have a range of thoughts. I mean, some thoughts are completely unacceptable from the same people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, there are, there are certainly people that I would be quite happy to not platform or to cancel. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and they, they seem to be the sort of people who get platformed anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I mean, but I'm not making an argument for... Yes. for uh, 
against no platform against mm. not you know no platforming mm-hmm. people because i think that yeah. some people just they yeah. don't well, somebody's always being not platformed yes, um, you exactly. know and it's usually the people who are who didn't have a voice in the first place um so you know that that can be difficult yeah most of the people that are being no platform you never hear about because they've been consistently yes. and yeah, frequently yeah, yes. no platform yeah. without yeah exactly yes. and it's it's very informal and it's just like we just won't invite this person because we don't think they're interesting enough or like, <laughs> oh, you know, this person's more high profile. And it's, it's just, it's just, yeah. it's not kind of, it's not even conscious, I don't think, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I even think about like, I mean, sorry to frame it this way, but experimental fiction, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, no, I'm, I'm that's like a constant no platforming, you know, yeah. of, of that, like just yeah. not letting it in the room because of the insistence that realism is one thing. Well, so know? I think some aspects of English language culture have very low expectations of readers and I think that people are able to absorb a lot of or deal with or you know like read and reject it doesn't really matter a lot of quite weird stuff you know everyday language is weird and (laughs) things you see on the internet are weird and just everyday systems we inhabit are pretty weird so it's like people can cope with all of those things and everyday language is very creative you know the way people Mm. use words in all sorts of situations and the idea that writing literary writing should slow that down and should make it more coherent is often just doesn't seem to make much sense to me why how do you what do you think makes people decide something is weird like what marks that i mean we we don't have to have like a general definition Mm. of weird but when someone selects or selects against something. It's That's says, interesting, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. It's funny, when I started writing, um, I didn't have any kind of training or anything. I just wanted to write some things. And the things that I started writing were even shorter and more fragmented than the things that I'm writing now. And I kind of had to learn to put in more stuff for people so that they would kind mm. of understand what I was talking about, even if I didn't want to go to the extent of being very, very explicit because I part of the way that I write is um, in order to invoke something in the reader uh that belongs to them or you know that's what i'm hoping to do so that they bring stuff to to the encounter um which you know is a strange encounter because it's just an encounter with my words i'm not even there at the time you know you were talking about these kind of sex encounters and what each person brings to them um but yeah it's it's an interesting point i can remember you know because i used to be far less extensively read in all sorts of things, in theory, in literature. And probably there were things that I thought were strange at one time, which I don't think are at all strange now. So mm. it's just a matter of, of, of where you're placed. And you can you can change that placing quite easily. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I, w- I would see it those like having a standard plot or having, yeah. you know, having a kind of realistic unfolding of narrative in the way, like... <clears throat> I see those things, they're challenges to a kind of artistic integrity, but also they can be flipped in a kind of almost like an Olipo way, mm-hmm. like, and say, hey, these um, these are actually acts of love that I put here in the same way that I would comfort a partner in a certain way. If I view the reader or the audience mm-hmm. as a partner, maybe I can extend a kind of compassion here. And the challenge is to be compassionate without losing my being or losing mm-hmm. yeah. the thing that I'm interested in exploring, you know, in some way, 
like because living in LA for so long and seeing all these sort of like people trying to do what they wanted to do within this Hollywood thing obviously was objectionable in some ways Mm -hmm. but in other ways I just thought what a great challenge to see the structure you have to enter into and say how can I make this meaningful to myself because this is what other people sometimes need from me you know Mm-hmm. But I think maybe. Do you think I'm being too generous in saying it that? No, way? generous to the structure, <clears throat> generous to the people who want to inhabit it. Yeah, well, either. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, you can't be too generous to the people, can you? But it's. I mean, I guess you can. I don't know. That that's all down to individuals. You know, structures are weird because they usually exist where people don't see a structure, where people think mm. this is kind of the way things are. And so often it takes something quite structured um, that seems quite artificial to, to, to change that point of view, or to change that system, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like making, um, what are they called? I can't remember the name for them, you know, um, you know, r- rules where you bring in certain people, quota rules, whatever. Mm. Um, you know, that can, that can seem... Oh, social engineering, they call it. Yeah, you know, sometimes I do things and people say, well, I don't like social engineering. And it's like you think society isn't engineered in a certain way already. You think this is natural. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, um, and I was thinking about, so I, I, there's like this feeling of presence of Donald Barthelme in some of your writing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. from one of your stories, I think it's online, reminds mm-hmm. me so much of Shadlige, you know, the yeah. story, my wife wants a dog, she already has a uh, baby. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but the, um, but the interesting thing in this, this point is that um, when you were talking about the sort of that transition or whatever, you know, all I, I only read science fiction, fantasy and horror when I was mm-hmm. a kid. And the thing that got me into reading literature was actually reading Donald Barthelme because oh, yeah. it was so strange and weird. Yeah. And sometimes like, you don't know what kind of gateway you might provide because people would think, how can you read the experimental thing before mm-hmm. you read the sort of normal thing? But actually it occupied that ecotone between yeah. this kind of weird imaginative fantasy stuff and the, you know, literary kind of standard realism, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, what was I going to say? Um, yeah, I think, I think, what I like doing, what I call those are emotional logic problems, because I like two things. I'm very, very interested in, in emotion. I'm very interested in kind of affect theory and all that stuff, but just basic emotion, why we feel things and how we justify them, tell them these things to ourselves as acts and as ways of living, ways of thought. And I like to kind of like, I think, well, why am I behaving like this? Why am I feeling this? And I like to sit there and unpack them linguistically. And it's something that Barthelme does, it's true. And then also people like Diane Williams and Lydia Davis do it. Mm. And then you find that, again, you do you do find that kind of in, mm. in quite a lot of Ulipo writing in Georges Perec. Um, but I like to kind of, yeah, why, why, why aren't these things, of course, emotion and logic are kind of very, very mm. intertwined because what is the end of logic except to... To, to, to describe something that we're feeling, um, you uh, know, to, 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 uh, to, 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 what's the end? I mean, if you say logic is, is um, something that either has a beginning or an end in sight, and either it comes from something, from, from some sort of practice, or it goes towards some sort of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's what we were, we we're trying to work out. So there's always a kind of emotional thing in there somewhere. There's mm-hmm. always, there's always a feeling um, yeah, otherwise, a, why go through the logical process? 
I know it's so interesting because I think of logic as you know, it's like a plant. Like a plant, it's mm-hmm. a growth process. Logic is a growth process. Like so, a plant grows and its stem sort of turns and the leaves start to unfold from the side of it as it grows up and then it unfolds into the flower. It's this mm-hmm. you know, Gertrude metamorphic principle. So everything kind of just unfurls in its own way according mm-hmm. to a certain kind of growth rhythm. And so then you write this online book, Seed, where Mm-hmm. It follows like the growth of a plant and you can have these kinds of emotional, they're about to flourish and then they're held back and then sort of, it's like neoteny almost mm-hmm. like it's held back and like stuffed back into itself. And so you have to go and retrace to get into a different kind of growth pattern to grow a certain yeah. way. So anybody wants to read seed, what is the seed? Yeah, it's, it's, it's seed-story.com and yeah, it's yeah. free online. Yeah, it's, it's full of, um, I mean, I grew up in a place like that. Again, it was like a kind of an in-between place between a town and a village, but not really an anywhere place. Um, it's because my, my parents wanted to live in the country, but, you know, there was no sense that we had any attachment there, uh, that we came from there. And it was, you know, it wasn't like in a house properly in the village. And it was it was in a fairly kind of scrubby area between there and a, a ring road. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the town was kind of, its its new estates were branching out and kind of surrounding this area on either side. Um, so it was, it was not really the countryside. It wasn't, I couldn't say that I'm a country person because it, I in no way felt that I came from there or that the relationship that I had was in any way embedded. I just happened to live between two fields. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what an amazing, I mean, that sums up so much of your project and what, yeah. as, as much as it could be yeah. summed up. I live between two fields. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's well, I like to, I like to think of I mean, it. I think, I think what made me write in the first place was thinking, well, this way that I'm living, various ways that I've lived at different times of my life, it doesn't seem to be, how it's being described to me doesn't seem to adequately describe it at all. I'm being told that my life is <laughs> like this and it is oriented towards these ends or it, it, it has these values. Whereas if I look at what I'm doing day to day just and just, you know, kind of list them or uh, make a pattern out of them, see see how my, mm. my life is patterning out and what emotions are involved, why I, why I think I'm doing some of these things, I think, well, actually, they're quite different. And what I want to do is just write down these things, look very carefully about when, you know, when I'm in a situation, a social situation or a physical situation. What am I doing here and why am I here and why would anyone be here? Um, and but, but most of all, just keep to the surface, keep to like what exactly is happening bit by bit. And it's a bit like the kind of object-oriented ontology in the table thing. It's like, okay, I'm looking at this thing. What is it? it I think it's a table, but also like it's a piece of wood and it's some metal bits mm. that are underneath it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's, that's kind of, that might be a more accurate way of seeing it. What, 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 can you tell me so when you say that there's like a difference so people told me it was this but mm-hmm. when I look at it it's this can you give me an example yeah sure I mean Vertigo which you've read is all about family relations it's mm-hmm. about it's about being a woman in a, in a family it's about being a daughter being a mother being a lover um, and you just think okay well I'm told that being being a mother I think that's what kind of highlighted me to, me to brought me into this so much is like this and I'm supposed to be having these experiences I'm supposed to be doing these things mm-hmm. to do it right I'm supposed to be having these emotions about it and I think there's a great wave of uh, motherhood writing at the moment that's telling us no no this is not what's happening at all this is not what I meant at all mm-hmm. um so that's that's a good thing um but yeah I so said that's uh, certainly where my 
my writing came from. And I thought, well, okay, the way to solve this is just to sit down and say, well, what am I doing right at this moment now? What physical objects does it involve? What emotions am I feeling? Um, and then kind of, you know, this can be patterned into some sort of some sort of story that retells the story of what it is to be here. Yeah, you get a really interesting... So everybody's listening, just obviously go read Joanna's writing, but you get a really interesting sense that... It is a bit like comedy, like in the way we're talking about mm-hmm. you, but oh, like yeah. that you notice things that others don't like, or you have a different way of noticing a different sort of movement of noticing. Mm-hmm. You might alight on different things in a different way. And I find that's something that's just so, it, it was just the moment I discovered what you're writing. I just thought, Oh, I would love to talk with her because I thought, yes, this is going to be someone who says things that, shock and surprise me mm-hmm. not for any sort of like avant-garde shocking the bourgeoisie sort mm-hmm. of reason but mainly because you just notice things in a different way i do find things funny as well i do like to just <laughs> i like I, I mean to be honest you know i've got a friend who is has been reading breakup recently and she's just quite good at analyzing that i do truly have you know even if my intent is to describe something very flatly and accurately which it is there's also timing and pacing and there there, there is this kind of sense of i do i do like to play with the reader i like to have a relationship with the reader and you know i i like to kind of introduce something so it comes in an unexpected way that can be kind of surprising or you know you could do that in a way that's very shocking but more often it's funny because my material is not it's not high tragedy it's it's the normal kind of mm-hmm way that we live the disappointments of everyday life or even the surprising pleasures and joys of it uh but they they come in unexpectedly or an unexpected kind of change of attitude can produce them but you've also got to produce the surprise in writing that 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 makes you realize that um and Mm. often, often that you know i think comedy is is it really does usually deal with the everyday there's you know comedy can't be about grand things well, your theoretical declarations end up being like punchlines, you know, and I don't yeah. know that you believe in all of them oh, just no, because no, they're no. stated a lot in the book, but when you that, have like yes. a sentence, like I was saying before, love is not analog, it's digital, yes. that's a good example of one that's just, it just sort of, it, it is like a punchline there, mm-hmm. and it it's not a funny punchline, I mean, it could be yes. funny if you wanted it to be, maybe, mm-hmm. but... You know, I I don't think it's meant to be read, and I don't read it as a funny punchline, but mm-hmm. it is a punchline, yes, n- it is, nonetheless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I was thinking about when so when you were talking about where you grew up in Seed Story, mm-hmm. how so in like occult philosophy there are four there are four bodies like we all have four bodies, not mm-hmm. one. So there's the mineral, the etheric, the astral, and the ego. But the etheric body is the one that's of interest here. It's the kind of the the growth that happens through patterning so i was talking about that logic growth process before with plants but this kind of you know our heartbeat our circulation this motion all this kind of stuff and a lot of times we think of anything that has that kind of etheric life growing property to it in opposition to the technological to Mm -hmm. the to the Maybe not the created. Like we could imagine, maybe objects, talismans, or you know, a, a shaker chair or something mm-hmm. like that. That's not opposed to this kind of. But but to have a novel that has the form of plant growth and vines on a phone is a weird is a weird proposition. And I couldn't tell if you think 
do I like, do you think that these things are in conflict or are they not, or am I supposed to feel a sense of conflict, not conflict? Am I supposed to be resolving? Am I supposed to be in a sense of like totally irresolvable contradiction? Um, Am I meant to even feel that like antipathy, you know, and I didn't know where you stood on that, maybe not in that book necessarily, but just in general, living in the growing up in the place that you grew up. It's funny, isn't it? The, um, the opposition of the natural and the technological in in that way. Um, You know, also the subject is pre-internet. It's set in the late 1980s. So it's not even, it's it's, it's about a place where there is very little technological communication. And in fact, it's about isolation. And it's about some of the invasions that some kinds of technology that are available, like kind of radio and, um, you know, there's tape recorders and there's there's magazines and things like that, that, that they do, the languages that come through there that they do kind of make in, make inroads into the idea of the character. But I, I'm, I'm interested in that kind of opposition because I couldn't have written that book without the internet. I don't mean in the sense of it being a technological object, which it is, you know, the, the story in the end, mm. but just because I wouldn't have felt... I, 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 I think I became a writer, I was enabled to become a writer by the internet, which however much people hate it and say it's full of sort of people just... Doing, saying terrible things to each other and, um, you know, insulting each other. Um, I, I also found, you know, I've, I've lived in isolated places quite a lot of my life, some of them kind of quite socially isolated, although they seem to be quite well connected, and others that um, were literally physically isolated. And eventually, you know, the internet came along and I found that there was... There were connections with people that I wouldn't previously have connected with, been able to connect with, uh, because of the kinds of life that I was living, because of the place that I was in. Literally, I don't mean place metaphorically, but the place literally, I you know, access to people, and um, I did find that that was really life changing. That's what made me allowed to become a writer. You know, before that, writers were just mm. people who did a thing in a specific place and I, I probably wasn't kind of smart enough to be one or you know wasn't the right sort of person or I didn't really have the desire to be one I had some sort of desires to do something but they're a bit unformed and I had thought about the story of seed I've been thinking about it ever since I was I don't know I guess in my early 20s I've been thinking I want to write about this experience because it's not an experience that I find written about hmm. it's so marginal hmm. and it's not marginal in a dramatic way I can't say this is more <coughs> dramatic life and um, you know everyone should hear about it because it will change their lives it'll change the way people think it's it's quite it's quite low-key um, nothing really happens in it nothing happens in any of my my work so that's really <laughs> that's really not saying anything um and and in fact it it is totally about nothing happening it's about a kind of you know i guess the middle of it the the crux of it it, because it does have a linear structure if you want to read it that way is a kind of thing that may or may not have been a sexual encounter but Mm. you know you don't know how far it went and the narrator doesn't really understand how far it went and then um and, and, and doesn't really know how to process this as narrative. So just abandons it as a, as a thing and goes off and does something else in the end and tries to, to forget it just because it doesn't fit into the kinds of narratives she's been given. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I, I found other people who were happy to listen to these these kind of narratives, to discuss them with me and, and who were writing them or making art about them themselves. 
And I found that it actually was yeah. a thing. It wasn't just a kind of, again, this word weird. It just wasn't so marginal that that uh, people didn't want to hear it. And Seed Story is definitely... Well, that the, the Everything you just described is what people will likely experience when they turn on their phone, because it's best on a mobile device, I guess, yeah. and go on and, and read this. People will abandon it in a way that they won't abandon a book that has yeah. a last page, right? Yes. And I don't mean that. Mm-hmm. I, well, you know, I don't mean that as an insult. Yeah. I don't. I don't mind it at all. I don't. You know, I, I like the uh, different ways of reading yes. that digital can provide. Yeah. And you wander around, and you can come and go in it. It's. It's. You know, I think huh. books of short stories and books of poems are, are similar in that you don't feel you have to start at the beginning. You might just flick to one that right. you like the look of, right. or you might read them. I mean, maybe some people read books of poems in a strictly kind of front-to-end order. I've occasionally done that, but only when it seems necessary. Only when um, the work yeah. feels like Yeah, I mean, like you know, the, the author yeah. and the editor have chosen the order that they went in, but there's, there's this feeling of freedom which you don't get in a novel. You don't just open a novel and start reading, you know, page 93. <laughs> Although <laughs> maybe that, would be, they, maybe that right. would be a, a good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, mm. the, yeah, oh gosh, what was I just going to say? <laughs> Something about, um, oh, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's like the way that people watch porn now, where yeah, so they even, watch a clip movies, yeah. <laughs> and then they like watch like another clip and then they watch yes. another clip and they jump around yeah. and I always wondered why you know I I had this like if I worked on it for like three weeks and then gave it up but I was thinking about doing like a consultation thing for like porn studios before they just kind of totally fell apart um, mm-hmm. in the you know around like 2010 or something but where it was like look if you want people to really buy like you need to have a way for people an interface for watching porn that's different not just Mm -hmm. like oh we put our porn movies online like you have to have something that lets people sort of trace the active and um excitable and you know sanguine like nature of and temperament of their desire where they can go from one thing to the next to the next to the next to the next Mm -hmm. and it's somehow like streamlines that process for them so they don't have to interrupt you know what I mean it's in some way so it's some sort of like Pandora for porn or but you know whatever but um that you're describing that process in an interesting way like we want in we want things to culminate in a different way almost is the mm-hmm. way I'm thinking about it. We want things to gather and, and, and accrete in a sort of, in a way that's not quite so identifiable to us as it used to be when we just relied on linearity mm-hmm. for that, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, so we've been talking about your writing so much. Would you read one of your stories sure. for us? Um, so I would love for you to read Vagues. I think okay. it's, um, I think it's a great, um, well, you know what? I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm just okay. going to let you read it. It's so. interesting you chose this one because I've read this one a lot and I That's think people so like it, but I haven't read it for like a few years, which is nice. So it's nice to come back to it. Okay, great. Yeah. And it's in your collection, Vertigo. It so is. There are many people in the Oyster restaurant and they all have different relations to each other, which weren't small adjustments. They ask each other courteously whether they wouldn't prefer to sit in places in which they are not sitting, but in which the others would prefer them to sit. Sometimes entire parties get up and the suggested adjustments are made. Sometimes they only half get up and then sit down again. Some of the tables in the restaurant face the beach and have high stools along one side so the diners can see the sea. Others have high stools on both sides so that some diners face the sea and others the restaurant, but both each other's faces. 
Because of the angle of the sun and of the straw shades over the tables, the people who face the sea are also more likely to be in the shade. Not everyone can face the sea. Not everyone can be in the shade. The waitress passes. The people who face the sea cannot see her and cannot signal to her with their eyes. Facing the sea, they can signal to nothing as nothing on the beach can receive their signals, not the seagulls, nor the mother and toddler who are too far away, nor the occasional stalk that picks through the rubbish. Yes, the beach has rubbish, though not much, and though the restaurant by its presence makes the rubbish unmentionable. All the beaches along this coast have some rubbish, either more or less than this beach. Here in the restaurant, the diners who face the sea may notice it or ignore it, but they must accept the rubbish as part of the environment, just as they must accept the seaweed that covers the stones near the sea with a green slippery layer, and which, unlike the rubbish, smells. The smell of the seaweed must be accepted as part of the natural environment, although it masks the scent of the oysters served at the bar, the smell of which is similar but different enough. Further along the beach, where the mother and toddler are paddling, the seaweed forms stripes of green that are pleasing, though this may be the effect of distance. The mother and toddler could have picked a better beach. Although all the beaches along this shore have some rubbish, some have less seaweed and fewer stones. The beach is not good for paddling, but perhaps it is good for oysters. Yes, the seaweed, the rubbish, the smell, the stones must all be part of the environment oysters prefer, which must be the reason the oyster restaurant is here, allowing customers seated at the table to look out at the beach and the sea and looking to understand that it must be the environment natural to oysters and to approve. Because he has chosen to sit at a table looking out at the sea in order to see and approve the environment natural to oysters, including the seaweed, the rubbish, the seagulls, the stalk, the stones, the mother, the toddler. He cannot signal to the waitress. And it is because of this, or because she is insufficiently attentive, or because the oyster bar employs insufficient staff during the busy summer season, that the waitress does not arrive with his order. He says, maybe they'll bring the entire order at once, though we would have thought they'd bring the drinks first. He says, They do not have enough staff. They employ the number of staff they can afford to employ and serve at a pace at which the staff is capable of serving. The capacity is natural and proportionally correct, il faut attendre. He says, they have too many tables. We must also consider the number of staff the restaurant can afford to retain over the winter months, which we may hope to remain steady, although the population of the island must shrink by, what, 50, what, 70%, and during which the catch of oysters may remain the same or may increase because the winter months are more likely to contain the letter R, during which it is said oysters are best eaten, since during their spawning season, which is typically the month not containing the letter R, they become fattery, watery and soft, less flavourful than those harvested in the cooler non-spawning months when the oysters are more desirable, and firm with a bright seafood flavour, so that although all the tables in the restaurant will not be filled in those winter months during which the population of the island shrinks by what, 45, what, 80%, we may hope that the number of serving staff employed by the restaurant will remain steady. Theories. During the off months for the visitors, which are the on months for the oysters, are the oysters packed in ice or tinned and shipped to Paris? During the off months for the visitors, which are the on months for the oysters, do the serving staff shuck shells or? During the off months for the visitors, which are the on months for the oysters, are the restaurant and the oysters abandoned and the staff laid off? The waitress passes our table again. She does not stop. He says, I think these are summer staff. They don't know what they're doing. 
in another country, my husband may be sleeping with another woman. He may have decided, having the option, being for once in the same city as her, finally to sleep with the woman with whom I know he has considered sleeping, although he has not slept with her up to now. It is lunchtime. Where my husband is, it is not lunchtime yet. If my husband sleeps with the woman, he will do so in the evening, as he has not yet done so, as he has not yet even begun to travel to the city where she lives, to which he is obliged to travel for work, whether he sleeps with her or now, no. And as I am here in the oyster restaurant at lunchtime in another country, there is nothing I can do to prevent this. The man sitting opposite me, looking out at the sea, the seaweed, the rubbish, the seagulls, the stalk, the stones, all of which I cannot see but which I know are behind me, does not want to wait for his oysters any longer. He has come here to relax, but the oysters are too relaxed for him. He says, do you want to leave? He half gets up as though about to leave, but does not. He wants to punish someone for the oyster's slow pace. He wants to punish the waitress, who is not brought his order by leaving. As he is facing the sea, he cannot signal to the waitress, so he wants to punish me by leaving. He does not leave. Because he does not leave, he wants to punish someone, the waitress, me, by failing to enjoy his lunch. Already he has asked the waitress several things. In the queue for tables, he asked the waitress for a table, although he was not yet at the front of the queue. When he asked, he did not ask her, but said, excusez-moi, which means, may I get through? Then he said, pardon, which means, I'm sorry. Then he made a noise that sounded like French and indicated the tables with his hand. Then he asked, oui, oui, which means, yes, yes. Then he asked me to ask the waitress for a table. Each time a group of people passed along the path by the restaurant on bikes or on foot, he looked at them anxiously in case they were able to join the queue, but be seated at a table before him. There are two entrances to the restaurant, both of which are visible from the door, and he watched both carefully to make sure no one bypassed the queue. When he arrived at the front of the queue, he made a false start towards a table, but the waitress did not respond. He did not repeat this movement, so as not to abandon his position at the front of the queue. He stood squarely at the front of the queue, so that no one could pass until another waitress arrived to give him a table. He has made an enemy of the first waitress. She will enjoy serving her enemy. Perhaps he too will enjoy this combat. I do not enjoy combat with waiters and waitresses, although I am now, by association, also her enemy. Now he is here seated at the table, that looks out at the sea. It is the table he indicated, the table he desired, from which he can see the sea, the beach, the seagulls, the stalk, the mother, the stones, the toddler, the seaweed, the rubbish, and, on the other side of the table, interrupting his view of all these things, me. He says, I want to leave. He says, do you want to leave? He gets up from the table. He sits down at the table. He stands up and walks from the table to the nearest door of the restaurant, during which time the waitress brings the drinks. Though I am able in some part to share his anxiety about the table, the drinks, the oysters, I find because he is so angry that I can face their delay with complete equanimity. The tables are made each from a semicircular length of half a tree trunk set on wooden trestles. The high stools are of brightly coloured powdered metal. Above the tables, the umbrellas of natural straw spell relaxation. He is not keen to relax. He is keen to get on. He is already late for his next station of relaxation for the beach, where we have an appointment to meet some friends of his at a strict hour. He is worrying that we will be late, 
and that they will be anxious, that they, that he, will not be able to relax. He takes out his phone to check the time. We must be on time for the deck chair, the towel. A speedboat drives directly at the restaurant from the sea, so directly that I can see neither its sides nor any perspective, only its prow and the foam it generates. On its prow sit two people, a man and a woman, perfectly tan, in black surf suits. And for a long time it looks like the boat will not stop and will continue to drive towards the restaurant arriving, unlike the people passing on the path on the other side of the restaurant by bike or on foot, through neither of the restaurant's doors but directly through the tables bypassing the queue entirely. He gets out his phone and checks the time again. About this time, my husband must be leaving for the city that is home to the woman with whom he has been thinking of sleeping. As I know, my husband is unlikely to tell me the truth about whether he sleeps with the woman or not. Though he may choose either to tell me that he has when he has not, or that he has not when he has. I have taken the precaution of being here in the oyster restaurant with this man who may wish to sleep with me. As my husband knows that I know he is unlikely to tell me the truth about the woman with whom he will or will not have slept, so that even if he tells me the truth I will be unable to recognise whether or not he's being truthful, he must believe that if he sleeps with the woman, he will sleep with her entirely for his own pleasure. I, if I sleep with the man who is sitting opposite me at the restaurant, though I will not lie about whether I have slept with this man or not, will be unable to tell my husband anything he will accept as truthful. So I must also, by consequence, make sure that if I sleep with this man, it must be entirely for my own pleasure too. The speedboat has turned, and the people in it, revealed to be six in number, all uniformly and perfectly tan and black, are either on the boat or in the sea beside the boat and are, with no hurry, doing something or not doing something, perhaps mooring the boat so that they can come to the restaurant to eat oysters, or not mooring the boat but doing something else altogether. They are slim and tan, and their slowness has kept them slimmer and tanner than the people who wish immediately to be in the restaurant eating oysters. He says, perhaps they're mooring and coming over to the restaurant to eat. At that moment, our oysters arrive and are eaten quickly. All the time we've been at the restaurant, there has been the sound of waves repeating quietly. Vag, I think. Undulate, undulate. The sound of waves is pitched and modulated precisely so as not to intrude, distract, but so as to remain constantly audible. Perfection. It's so... Gratifying to hear you read it, actually. I love I, reading out loud, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, me love too. Yeah. It's one of my favorite. Every <clears throat> guy that I've ever dated has had to, I hope, enjoy, but maybe <laughs> in some cases just endure me reading out loud to them mm. constantly. Do you like ASMR? Have you, have you, have you looked at that? Yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. I make jokes. My friend Caitlin Doty was on the, the at this time, the most recent episode that's out. She and mm. I make ASMR jokes all the yeah. time. <laughs> but there's something really alluring to it, of course. Yeah, I love it. There's, I think there's a guy I know from Twitter um, who does ASMR theory. Oh, really? Yeah, you should look him up. No, I can't remember his Twitter ASMR handle. ASMR theory. He's called Graham, um, but I can't remember exactly what he you calls himself. You can send himself. it to me and I'll put I in the will. show notes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Because they're nice. He's done some He's done some Deleuze, I think. He's uh, done some Spinoza. Yeah, it's great. You know, you can just, you can just, yeah, you can just sit there and relax to it I started doing this thing I've got to tell you about it I started doing this thing called theory plus housework theory I've got a little oh, I book that I wrote about yeah, that today, thing. Actually. and I, I just thought oh, well I'm going to make it started with this booklet well, it started with my PhD work I was 
I found that I was listening to podcasts, theory, period podcast lectures, um, you know, like kind of text-to-speech reader where you put a PDF in and it'll read it out to you. So I was listening yeah. to kind of articles, uh, academic stuff, um, while I was and while I was doing something completely domestic, and I was just kind of tickled by the the juxtaposition mm, of these mm. things. So I found I was kind of cooking <laughs> or ironing or something and so I, I wrote this little thing called theory plus housework theory which was published by the british poet sam riviere for his press Ever leaf falls um and i, I liked it so much i was i i just thought it doesn't stop there it, it is kind of practice and i am interested in what happens so i i decided to kind of expand this further thinking about you know not just what was being read and what I was doing but who was reading how did this text mm. get to me so if you think about it to be honest yeah okay I won't I won't I won't say that I've pirated any texts I wouldn't I wouldn't say that so I wouldn't be ripping off any authors or anything um and but feeding a pdf you know, into a text-to-speech reader, which is usually a natural text-to-speech reader. So someone, they're available for free online, but someone has, um, someone has, oh, I feel, and you know what, I'm going to start again with that. Um, <laughs> because, uh, all right, ha, huh, okay. So. I'm also interested in why about, you got derailed there. Oh, I got derailed because I thought you were going to put that in the podcast about me pirating books and then I'll get prosecuted. Oh, no. Uh, okay. Well, David Shields <laughs> won't get in trouble now that Good, I know. Yeah. Um, you know, just think of it as art. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I get this, I get, I get the text, so I get PDFs of books and I feed them to a text to speech reader and I'm thinking about, okay, where does this come from? It's free online. It's actually a natural voice. So it's presumably someone has, sat there and read mm. a lot of sounds and words into yeah, ex- yeah. In, in, into a recorder you can get different you can get different voices you can get the gender the the, the accent you prefer mm. you can speed them up you can slow them down um, I like to listen to them on sort of two first or slightly two first because I like to kind of just zoom through it and then stop it go slow on on bits that I that I have to write down or I have to think about um I think about all the work involved in producing the book from the writer, from from you know the the, the publisher, from the the the, the text bot who's reading it to me, and you know inevitably the text bots, the text speech readers, even if when they're natural speech readers, they're you know a little bit clunky. They're, they're, they they there's a slight error of artificiality about the speech, um, which is interesting. And meanwhile, you know I'm dead so there's all this kind of labor doing that and I'm doing another kind of labor I'm doing some quite domestic labor which is not associated at all with intellectual work and indeed it's opposed to it and I I would challenge that opposition I don't think there's that much difference between reading a theory paper and uh, you know making a stew Mm. Um, you know there are are different kinds of knowledges involved you're using them all there's a different kind of labor and you think about you know like all the all the labor in it which is Renumerated in various ways, which bits are paid, which bits are. Right, I was just thinking of put up for free. Theory plus yes. housework theory. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's where it, that's where it comes from. And it's, it's just the project. yeah the, the the body of knowledge that comes both from me, you know, having learnt to cook for years and years, and from um, the writer having learnt to think for years and years. And of course, the writer has to go off and cook sometimes as well, unless mm. they're. Um, have you seen the video of um, David Lynch making quinoa? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's, it's it's easily no. available on YouTube. No. He, he just Amazing. makes he just makes quinoa, and he's he's like being a cookery demonstrator. And then while the quinoa's cooking, he has to stop and tell you an anecdote because it's like 15 minutes or something to cook 
decent quinoa uh-huh. um and then so he tells no you he tells decent quinoa, but mm, yeah well he, he, he likes it very much yeah he really he's a really really yeah, big maybe that's my big quinoa problem. fan yeah. and it's 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 sort of shot in overexposed black and white so it looks a bit like a razor head and so he's making this quinoa and he's telling you this anecdote and now i'm telling you the anecdote about david lynch uh, that's funny Sorry, telling yeah, the anecdote. So. but anyway theory plus aspect theory i just thought I'd, I'd quite like to start a youtube channel in which i enacted this kind of stuff so i've i just thought that they're kind of quite uh, rubbish little videos on my phone um and I, I quite like them just to be very candid I, I did one last night that I was quite pleased with because it sort of extended the housework bit a bit it wasn't exactly housework I just thought I'd film myself uh, looking through Pinterest and hmm. just because I, I thought well what does my face do what what do my eyes do when I'm looking at Pinterest and I click on a thing I want to save or I erase a pin so I just did this very short film of about a minute where I'm listening to Judith Butler's Gender Trouble and at the same time I'm looking through Pinterest and I delete one pin oh, yeah, and that was fascinating that. for me to, uh. to think you know you look back at yourself I was I, I think I succeeded in doing it you know without any kind of artificiality and I was just I was just lying in bed and you know I didn't do anything special to make myself look nice or you know anything at all um which which is kind of quite nice because even as a writer there's a great pressure to sort of have a public experience maybe especially as a woman I don't know um, probably there's a little bit of extra pressure there to appear as as sort of attractive at the same time as uh, presenting your stuff so I was quite pleased with with you know it takes quite a lot lot to step outside that and just say this is what I look like you know I'm lying in bed with mm, um, mm. with actually I'm not wearing anything but you can't see anything that you know from my shoulders you can only see my shoulders up and you can only see my face you can't see the Pinterest board I you know I've, I just messed around with that and I thought in the end what I want to see is like what does my face look like when I'm just kind of slack jawed scrolling through Pinterest <laughs> finding a pin I like pinning it or unpinning it um, and that's that's what I did while listening to Judith Butler and obviously absorbing things I hope that's no that's really great I mean that is how we take these things in in one way or another right like so you're making me think of two things and one is mind walk do you remember this movie no no it's it's really it's really fantastic it's all based on it's a it's a movie about systems theory Mm -hmm. um written by Fridjof Capra's son or at least directed by yeah written and directed I think by Fridjof Capra's son there's sort of big one of the original real systems theorists but um it's just three people walking through like walking to different places but there's this woman there who's she, she, i i describe her as like what i'm like at a party mm-hmm. where they're just kind of having like normal and she's like all the problems are interlaced and blah 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 it's just, it's just going on and on it's just really incredible and she's a famous actor but i can't remember i can't remember any of the actors yeah. names but but they're just sort of walking through and like churning through everything and that's Mm -hmm. actually how these conversations about these ideas take place i mean it's not just you read the book and then you write you know there's always uh you know that there's always a what would we call it like an opportunity Mm -hmm. or an oh in theater writing it's there's always an occasion for the Mm -hmm. play you know there's always the occasion through which these things emerge and why not while Mm -hmm. you're doing housework you know well i like the um you know what you said about walking i wrote a little bit in breakup about you know i I always forget things i've written um so yeah there was this kind of ancient greek technique of what is it i've, I've you know uh, if i find the page because i don't know i probably don't have time to find the page because i won't but it's it's about kind of a system of argument which was based on mm. arguing from an answer back to a principle and it was done it was taught while walking from place to place but of course you know i don't know and, and stopping and it was a kind of 
I can't say this word aloud, mnemonic, mnemonic, mnemonic thing, and that you would remember various stages in the argument as you passed the tree or right, a house or right. whatever. Um, so I like to, so that kind of walking and thinking is, is really interesting. So yeah, doing, doing a thing while thinking, latching it onto another process is, uh, re, is, is really interesting. Well, I used to, um, when I was teaching, I would grade, <laughs> grade my papers at the rest area that I cruised and had sex with. At, so I had sex with, that's a nice Freudian slip, but had sex at. But um, it's funny because I, w- I was thinking so much, it's unavoidable for someone like me to read your writing and not think of rest areas. And in fact, I wrote, one of the first essays I published was called Rest, I didn't name it, but called Rest Stop Confidential. And it is about, you know, cruising at these rest areas and how, you know, you walk into the woods mm-hmm. and, and you have sex with a guy in the woods. And, you know, I think the line is something like we want something only nobody nowhere can give us because there's mm-hmm. like a sort of like falling away of identity when you go yes. into these places. Oh, yeah. And it's so honest and mm-hmm. in a really beautiful way. But. I used to park the car and grade my papers until mm-hmm. someone else parked, oh, yeah. and then I would That's go such a and then I would come use back. Of time. It's, yeah, it, it, is, it is like theory plus housework theory. It's yes, like, it, yeah. exactly. It's, it's sort like, of like yeah. the yeah, like and the ways that we one make work bearable to us in in some way, some way to um, make it something that is is perforated, you know, in a way that we can find it uh, more enjoyable. And a, a lot of times, it's like. Mm-hmm. If I pair this, like if I, yeah. if I if I pair this with something, it'll transform in the same way that if I lie one word next to another, you know, um, some a new kind of meaning arises out of it. I was talking to a friend last week who said she masturbates to her um, supervisor's lectures, uh-huh. um, and uh-huh. and then she notes she notes the words. The sentences that um, you know, like the driver, the, the cl- no, 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 the the ones that the ones that are being spoken at the climatic moments. Ami- amazing. Yeah. amazing. And I, I think you could make some good some good work out of that. I love no, I love that. I have this whole like um, I talked about it on I forget which episode, but there was a there's this porn that I've watched many times. I've, so many times it's just ridiculous at this point, but it's a, it, it is a pr- professor talking to his student, but the part that gets me like crazy, it's just one moment. And I don't understand at all where the, the professor is talking to the student and the student's like, I can't figure it out or I don't know the answer. And he says, you can't think of anything, nothing must be able to think of something and for some reason the intonation Mm -hmm. it drives me fucking bonkers you know so like locating like these weird like linguistic things and also the tone the way they're said Mm -hmm. the kind of melody of them it's so fascinating yeah 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 that kind of a lot of people find that kind of pedagogical situation a turn on don't they yeah well it's not even the setup of the student and the I've, I've done a movie I've done, I'm just going to say, I've done a movie like that myself where it, it was me and the student and the student came in. And first of all, I'd written, so you a Susan, I was a professor yeah. and I'd written a Susan Sontag quote on the blackboard. Oh, yeah. So this is the first time I think Susan Sontag's appeared That's in gay great. porn. And then I wrote <laughs> Rudolf Steiner's name and I wrote, and I wrote versus Jonathan friends and I don't know why. And then the, and then the student comes in and I ask him if he's read the, if he's read 
if, if he knows what I'm talking about when I talk about this uh, moment in Disgrace by J.M. Katzia, mm-hmm. which is a novel about a professor sleeping with one of his students. <laughs> and so it was very, like, yeah, meta. So, so, so whoever, whoever watches that is going to get an education as well. Yeah, nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody, ever, nobody ever emailed <laughs> no, me no, about no, that. No one writes to you and say, you know, that was a really great No, <laughs> <laughs> No, but that's why, that's why I bring it up, just to be like, look, people, it's out there. Will yeah. somebody notice? But um, I think... Uh, I th- there's so many more things I want to talk with you about, but I think we'll just have to have you back on. I'm so excited to learn that you live yeah, in Ireland and not it. far. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and I've just had such a great time talking with you mm. and I hope this is the first of many conversations. So yeah. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> All right. Um, well, everybody, thank you so much, uh, for listening. Bye. <laughs>